Today I'll go over Jules Verne's book, From the Earth to the Moon. There are of course a lot of spoilers, so I would really recommend that you read the book before going through this lecture. The story takes place after the American Civil War in 1865. This is a picture I took at the Gettysburg National Military Park. The story begins in Baltimore, Maryland, where we learn there is an organization called the Baltimore Gun Club. Here is a quote from the book. Quote, now when an American has an idea, he looks for another American who shares it. If there are three of them, they elect a president and two vice presidents. If there are four, they appoint a secretary and their staff is ready to function. If there are five, they convene a general assembly and their club is formed. That was how it happened in Baltimore. We learned that the members were involved with creating weapons during the Civil War. Each member is responsible for the death of 2,375 and a fraction men. Here's another quote from the book. Quote, from this figure, it is clear that the aims of that learned society were the destruction of the human race for philanthropical reasons and the improvement of war weapons, regarded as instruments of civilization. It was an assemblage of angels of death who at the same time were thoroughly decent men. End quote. The Baltimore Gun Club is headed by Impe Barbicane, and he invites members to a meeting on October 5th. His letter read, quote, The president of the gun club has the honor of informing his colleagues that during the meeting of October 5, he will make an announcement that will be of the greatest interest to them. He therefore strongly urges them to be present. End quote. Here are a couple of quotes from the meeting on October 5th. Quote, Many long years will go by before our cannons again thunder on a battlefield. We must accept this fact and seek another outlet for our restless energy. End quote. He goes on, quote, I will lead you in the conquest of the moon, and its name will be added to those of the 36 states that form this great nation. End quote. In 1865, there were in fact 36 states in the United States. Barbican gets specific with, quote, From my incontestable calculations, I have reached the conclusion that a correctly aimed projectile with an initial velocity of 36,000 feet per second is sure to reach the moon, end quote. Now, is that true? Where did he get 36,000 feet per second? You can calculate the speed required to escape the Earth's gravitational pull by using the equation above. The escape speed is often called escape velocity and is shown in the equation above as VESC. You can derive this equation from Newton's equations, but for now, let's calculate the Earth's escape velocity by plugging in numbers. G is the universal gravitational constant and is equal to 6.67 times 10 to the minus 11 meters cubed per kilogram second squared. The mass of the earth is about 6 times 10 to the 24 kilograms and the radius of the earth is about 6.4 times 10 to the 6 meters. To make sure that the units are consistent, I'm going to use all standard metric units, i.e. kilograms, meters, and seconds. The result is 11,183 meters per second or equivalently 36,690 feet per second. I think that's very cool that the number used in the story is almost exactly the escape velocity of the Earth. Barbicane's plan of sending a projectile to the moon is well received. The initial plan is to send an uncrewed projectile. Here is another quote from the book. Quote, they treated it casually as if they owned it. It seemed that blonde Phoebe belonged to those bold conquerors and was already part of the territory of the Union. And yet they were planning only to send a projectile to the moon. This is a rather brusque way of establishing relations, even with a satellite. But it is in very common use by civilized nations. End quote. Phoebe is a name for the moon. Some 
some parallels can be drawn by President Barbicane's announcement and that of President John F. Kennedy. We have seen in a previous lecture how President Kennedy also gave a bold speech of going to the moon when in fact the total American astronaut time in space was about 15 minutes. President Barbicane also makes the announcement about sending a projectile to the moon and only then does he start to ask questions about how that can be done. Barbicane first asked the Observatory of Cambridge, Massachusetts about certain astronomical questions pertaining to the moon, such as the distance to the moon. The observatory responds, quote, the moon is thus near to the earth at some times than at others, or in astronomical terms, it is sometimes at its apogee and sometimes its perigee. The difference between the two distances is not negligible. At its apogee, the moon is 247,552 miles from the earth, and at its perigee, it is 218,657 miles away, end quote. Note that these values are quite close to the modern values for the moon of 251,966 miles at apogee and 225,744 miles at perigee. The observatory tells Barbicane that the projectile should be, quote, launched 97 hours, 13 minutes, and 20 seconds before the moon arrives at the point of aim, end quote. Note that is about four days. Do you remember how long Apollo missions took to get from the Earth to the moon? Apollo 11, for example, launched on July 16, 1969, and landed on the moon on July 20, 1969. Another point that the observatory makes is that Barbicane should launch the projectile when the moon is directly above in the sky. They state, quote, but in order for the moon to rise to the zenith of a given place, the latitude of that place must be no greater than the moon's declination. That is, the place must lie somewhere between the equator and the 28th parallel, either north or south, end quote. There's a note that states, quote, only between the equator and the 28th parallel does the moon reach the zenith at its culmination. Beyond the 28th parallel, it approaches zenith less and less as one moves towards the pole, end quote. Let's try to understand why the 28th parallel lines are important. Here is a diagram of the Earth and the moon showing their orientations relative to their orbital planes. Let's start with the Earth on the left. Notice that the north-south line of the Earth is tilted by 23 degrees relative to the vertical line that is drawn. That vertical line is 90 degrees to the Earth's orbital plane about the Sun. That's usually referred to as the ecliptic plane. Now let's consider the Moon's orbit around the Earth. Note that the Moon orbits the Earth along a plane that is not quite aligned with the ecliptic plane. The Moon's orbit is offset by about 5 degrees. In this current drawing, you'll notice that if you were above the 28 degree north latitude point on Earth, the Moon will never be above your head in the sky. Similarly, if you're further south than the 28 degree south latitude point on Earth, you will also never see the moon directly above your head. As such, there is a sort of band between the 28 degree north latitude and the 28 degree south latitude on Earth, where at some point in time the moon will be directly above you in the sky. This is why the observatory was suggesting that Barbicane launch the projectile from a location within these latitude limits. We'll return to latitudes in a few slides. Interestingly, there is a real observatory in Cambridge, Massachusetts called the Harvard College Observatory. On the right is a sketch of the 15-inch Great Refractor, which was installed in 1847. Fittingly, the first observation of this telescope was of the moon on June 24, 1847. This was the largest telescope in the United States until 1867. So it isn't surprising that Jules Verne chose this observatory for his story, which was again published in 1865. The book explains how the sun, the planets, and their moons formed. Quote, molecules located in the plane of the equator escaping like a stone from a sling whose cord just snapped formed several concentric rings 
around the sun, like those of Saturn. These rings of cosmic matter rotated around the central mass. They began disintegrating and breaking up into secondary masses, i.e. into planets. If the observer had watched these planets, he would have seen them acting exactly like the sun and giving birth to one or more cosmic rings. This was the origin of those minor bodies known as satellites. End quote. While we don't think in terms of these exact terms, the first part describing the formation of the sun and the planets is fairly close to modern ideas. While the latter explanation of how moons formed isn't applicable to the Earth's moon, it again is likely the way that other moons, such as the moons of Jupiter, formed. The book also talks about putting a flag on the moon. Quote, as for the Americans, their only ambition was now to take possession of that new continent in space and plant the star-spangled banner of the United States on its highest peak. End quote. On the right is an image of Buzz Aldrin next to the American flag on the moon. Having gotten the information that he needed from the observatory of Cambridge, Barbicane moves on to the engineering of the cannon and the projectile. Quote, Without wasting any time, President Barbicane appointed an executive committee from among the members of the gun club. In three meetings, this committee was to elucidate the three great questions of the cannon, the projectile, and the propellant. End quote. In designing the cannon, they look at the largest cannons developed at that point in time. Quote, the Rodman Columbiad, tested at Fort Hamilton near New York City, shot a half-ton projectile six miles with a muzzle velocity of 2,400 feet per second, a result never obtained by Armstrong and Parlisser in England, end quote. So the Rodman Columbiad cannon is their baseline design, but recall that since they're trying to get the projectile to go 36,000 feet per second, they need a much bigger cannon. Something that you may notice is that as with the case with the Apollo program, the first trip to the moon used a former weapon that was converted to a means of transportation. As we have discussed, rockets were primarily used from their origins for warfare, and of course cannons also were weapons of war. The book discusses the cannon a bit further. Quote, we agreed that the problem is giving an initial velocity of 36,000 feet per second to a shell with a diameter of 9 feet and a weight of 20,000 pounds. End quote. Quote, I'm now going to ask our worthy secretary to calculate the weight of a cast iron cannon with a length of 900 feet, an inner diameter of 9 feet, and walls of 6 feet thick. End quote. Quote, the cannon will weigh 68,040 tons. End quote. The story talks about the myth of the origin of gunpowder that is associated to a monk named Schwartz, who apparently died in a blast. Quote, it is generally known and often repeated that gunpowder was invented in the 14th century by a monk named Schwartz, who paid for his great discovery with his life. But it has now been almost certainly proven that this story must be classified as a medieval legend, end quote. Much like rockets, gunpowder likely originated in China around the 9th century. By the way, gunpowder is a mixture of sulfur, charcoal, and potassium nitrate. It turns out that using gunpowder to propel the projectile will not work due to the sheer amount of gunpowder that they would need. They needed a propellant that was less massive, so they chose gun cotton. Gun cotton is another name for nitrocellulose, which is just cotton treated with nitric acid and sulfuric acid. An image of nitrocellulose is shown on the right. At this point in the story, we meet the antagonist, Captain Nickel. Quote, Barbicane was a great caster of projectiles, and Nickel was a great forger of armor. One cast night and day in Baltimore, while the other forged day and night in Philadelphia. Each was pursuing a line of thought essentially opposed to that of the other. As soon as Barbicane invented a new projectile, Nickel invented a new armor plate. End quote. Captain Nickel is critical of Barbicane's plan of sending a projectile to the moon. Quote, First, Barbicane was violently attacked in his figures. Nickel tried to demonstrate by rigorous logic that his calculations were wrong, and he accused him of not knowing the elementary principles of ballistics. Among other things, he stated that it was 
absolutely impossible to give any object a speed of 36,000 feet per second, end quote. Quote, he publicly announced in the Richmond Inquirer that he was willing to make the following bets. One, that the gun club could not obtain the funds necessary for the project, $1,000. Two, that the casting of a 900-foot cannon was unfeasible and would not succeed, $2,000. Three, that it would be impossible to load the cannon and that the gun cotton would be prematurely ignited by the pressure of the projectile, $3,000. Four, that the cannon would burst the first time it was fired, $4,000. Five, that the projectile would reach a height of less than six miles and would fall back to the earth a few seconds after being fired, $5,000, end quote. We already considered why the Observatory of Cambridge suggested that Barbicane choose a location for the cannon between 28 degrees north and south of the equator. Let's look at what that means in terms of geography of the United States at the time. This is a map from approximately the time of the story. This map is from 1857, but the story takes place in 1865. Notice that finding a location below the 28 degree north latitude line means that Barbicane had to decide between southern Texas and southern Florida. Tampa, Florida is ultimately chosen, but take a look at the zoom in on Florida, where interestingly, Tampa isn't very far from a location identified as Sea Canaveral. It is from Cape Canaveral where the first Apollo astronauts would launch and head to the moon about a hundred years later. Here's a specific quote from the book as to why Florida was chosen. Quote, it's obvious that the same difficulties will arise among the towns of whichever state is chosen. The rivalry will simply pass from the genus to the species, from states to towns. Texas has 11 towns that meet all the necessary conditions. If Texas is chosen, they'll all fight for the honor of having the project, and they'll only make more trouble for us. But Florida has only one town, so I think our choice is clear. Florida and Tampa, end quote. I found it interesting that as Barbicane first stepped foot in Florida, it's written that, quote, Barbicane felt his heart pounding when he set foot on Florida soil. He seemed to be testing it like an architect testing the solidity of a house, end quote. As you may remember, this is very similar to what Neil Armstrong did on the surface of the moon. The story moves on to digging of the hole for the cannon, quote, so the hole we're going to dig will be 60 feet wide and 900 feet deep. It's a big job, and it must be finished in a little more than eight months, end quote. After digging is completed, they have a festival inside the cannon. Quote, a table set for 10 had been placed on the massive stone cube that supported the cannon, whose interior was brightly illuminated by a beam of electric light. Exquisite and numerous dishes, which seemed to descend from the sky, were successfully placed on the table, and the finest French wines flowed freely during that magnificent meal served 900 feet underground, end quote. As the date for the launch neared, Barbicane receives a message, quote, Paris, France, September 30, 4 a.m., Barbicane, Tampa, Florida, USA. Replace spherical shell with cylindro-conical one. I will go to the moon in it. Am coming on steamer Atlanta. Michelle Arden, end quote. Recall that the actual Apollo spacecraft has cylindro-conical shape. When Barbicane questions Arden if he's sure about going to the moon, Arden responds, quote, thought it over. I can't waste time on that. I found a chance to visit the moon. I'm going to take it. And that's all there is to it. I see no reason why I should think it over, end quote. After Arden arrives in Florida, there's a meeting in a large tent where people gather to learn more about him. Quote, 300,000 people gathered under it and braved the sifling heat for several hours, waiting for the Frenchman to arrive. A third of the crowd could see and hear, another third could see little and hear nothing, and the final third could neither see nor hear, though they were no less eager to applaud. End quote. During part of the meeting, Arden gets into a discussion with a member of the audience. We learn later that person was Nickel. In this particular discussion, Arden says, so there is no air on the moon. Would you mind telling me who says so? Nickel says, scientists. Arden asks, really? Nickel says, really. Arden goes on to say, quote, all joking aside, I have deep respect for scientists who 
know, but deep disdain for those who don't, end quote. Nickel asks, do you know any who belong in that latter category? Arden says, yes, in France there is one who maintains that mathematically birds can't fly, and there's another whose theories demonstrate that fish aren't made to live in water. One of the rather interesting points that Arden makes is, quote, because the pull of the Earth's gravity has made the moon take the shape of an egg with its small end pointed towards us, this means, according to Hansen's calculations, that its center of gravity is in the other hemisphere. And so we can conclude that all its air and water must have been drawn to its other side from the first days of its creation, end quote. What's really cool is that what he says is actually true. The moon has a somewhat egg shape to it. The only correction is that the pointed part of the egg isn't pointing towards the earth, but rather away from it. In this map of the moon showing surface elevations, you will see the near side of the moon in the middle of the image. This is a side that always faces the earth. On the left and right of the image is the far side of the moon, the side that we don't see from the earth. The red-yellow colors are showing higher areas, and the blue-purple colors are showing lower areas. Notice that the elevations on the far side are generally higher than those of the near side. Another thing I found interesting is the quote from Arden, what's to stop me from slowing down my fall by igniting properly placed rockets at the right time? This reminded me of the lunar module, which slowed down its fall to the moon using properly placed rockets. Before the launch of the moon, Nickel and Barbicane challenge each other to a duel. This was a crazy practice in the past where two people would shoot each other with a gun to settle their differences. This is depicted in the play Hamilton, for instance. In the early morning, J.T. Maston bursts into Arden's room. Quote, They're fighting this morning in the Skirksnoff woods. I learned about it from Barbicane himself. If he's killed, it will mean the end of our project. The duel mustn't be fought. There's only one man with enough influence over Barbicane to make him stop, and that man is Michelle Arden. End quote. We learned that, quote, Captain Nickel had laid his rifle on the ground, forgetting the dangers of his situation, and was now trying to free, as gently as possible, the victim caught in the monstrous spider's web. When he had finished, he released the little bird. It joyfully fluttered its wings and flew away. End quote. We also learned that Barbicane had momentarily forgotten about the duel in the forest and was doing math instead. Arden notes, quote, When a man forgets his hatred to plunge into problems of mechanics or rob a spider of his breakfast, it means that his hatred isn't dangerous for anyone. End quote. He suggests that to settle their differences, Nickel and Barbicane accompany him to the moon. Note that now three people will be traveling to the moon, much like the Apollo missions. We have seen that early rocket tests were conducted with animals like Laika and Ham. Similarly, Barbicane tests if animals could survive projectile flight. Quote, Barbicane placed first a big cat, then a squirrel that belonged to J.T. Maston and was his favorite pet. He wanted to know how this little animal, which was not likely to suffer from dizziness, would be affected by the experimental journey. End quote. Here's a description of the projectile coach which Arden, Barbicane, and Nickel would use to travel to the moon. Quote, it would be a mistake to assume that three people had to be cramped in that metal tower. It had an area of 54 square feet and a height of about 10 feet, enough to give the passengers a certain freedom of movement. They would not have been more at ease in the most comfortable railroad car in the United States, end quote. While the story imagines a lot of space inside the projectile coach, this isn't what the Apollo spacecraft turned out to be. Verne imagined even taking two dogs. In the image on the right, Michael Collins is shown inside the cramped command module. Speaking of Apollo, during the Apollo 11 mission, Neil Armstrong gave a nod to Jules Verne. Here's a quote from Armstrong on their way back to the Earth. Quote, this is the commander of Apollo 11. A hundred years ago, Jules Verne wrote a book about a voyage to the moon. His spaceship, Columbia, took off from Florida and landed in the Pacific Ocean after completing a trip to the moon. It seems appropriate to us to share with you some of the reflections of the crew as the modern-day Columbia completes its rendezvous with
with the planet Earth and the same Pacific Ocean tomorrow. A couple of things about this quote. First, the command module of Apollo 11 was named Columbia, but Armstrong misidentified the name of the projectile from Verne's story. The projectile is only called the projectile coach. The confusion may have come from the canon in Verne's story being modeled after Rodman Columbiad, which is just a Columbiad-type canon. Also, you may have noticed that the book from the Earth to the Moon does not end in the Pacific Ocean. This is because that is part of the sequel. Jules Verne published the sequel to From the Earth to the Moon in 1870. The sequel is called Around the Moon.